Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So last week, Sean, Pastor Sean, kicked off our new message series in Thessalonians. And I just want to say publicly to him, thank you for doing that. It is not an easy job uh, to start off a message series from the very get-go. Um, but I felt like you did an excellent job. I listened to the message last week and I was encouraged by it. Thank you for faithfully teaching God's word, Sean. It's the first time he's ever preached here. He started in a pastoral candidacy process uh, with me uh, shortly after he started attending the church here. That was about, I guess, almost three years ago, four years ago. Um, And so uh, I finally felt like he was ready So, yeah, he did a good job, good job. So he kicked off our Thessalonians series and he talked about this new church plant that um, was planted in the book of Acts chapter 17 on Paul's second missionary journey. So Paul has got Timothy Silas with him, he's traveling, he goes over from Macedonia, he travels over to Philippi, then he goes over to this town called Thessalonica, and he's planting this church. Now, Sean showed you a map last week, I think his map looked a little bit better than mine, but his didn't move, so uh, I'm back with moving maps. So let's take a look, and just look at that, red square's in a different spot finally. I don't know if you noticed that or not, but since we've been doing this, it's, all, it's only ever in the Middle East, right over Israel. But today, uh, it's in a different area. So we're zooming in over here in Greece area. This is, and I brought this up to kind of help you see uh, where we are today. Um, so on Paul's second missionary journey, he went over with uh, some of his uh, traveling companions and Philippi is like right up here in this area. So they crossed over from Mas- uh, in, into Macedonia, up here to Philippi, then he went over to Thessalonica. Thessalonica, this is around Acts chapter 17. He comes into town, he starts preaching. The Jews in town don't like what he's saying. They create a mob and an uproar and Paul has to flee in the middle of the night. He goes just down the road to this town called Berea. That's the red line that we're following here. So Berea, the red line, that's Paul. And if you're colorblind, there there are two colors, I promise. Uh, Red's over on the left side and then purple's over on the right side. But Berea is where Paul uh, goes to next and he starts spreading the gospel there and it's taking root and things are going well. But the people from Thessalonica that caused the uproar, they hear he is in Berea and they go over to the next town to start another mob. So things go wild in Berea and then Paul leaves in the middle of the night. He, we're told in Acts 17, 14, uh, that Timothy and Silas stayed in the region when Paul left. So Paul went down, took this little ship, went down, went to Athens. And by the time he got down to Athens, Timothy and Silas had gotten on a boat and followed him and met him up in Athens. And when they're there, that's what we're told in Acts 17, 15. And then we learned last week in uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 through 20, that once they were all here, Paul, Timothy, and Silas, they were in Athens, Paul starts getting a little anxious about the churches they had just planted. 
They had to leave in the middle of the night. They're not really sure if the churches are gonna take root. They're worried, Paul is concerned that maybe Satan's gonna have his way and kind of uprooting all of the work that they did. So he sends Timothy back up, and that's where Timothy, he leaves from this purple line. He goes back up. So Timothy goes back up to Thessalonica to get a report on the church, and then comes back over to Corinth, and that's when they all meet up. And when Timothy meets Paul back in Corinth, uh, Tim, or Paul writes a letter to the Thessalonians about the report that Timothy had. So that's kind of the background. That's important because that's a big, that's pretty much all of chapter three. And that's what we're going to read today. So I want to start off the end of chapter two where, Paul, where Sean was last week to kind of get us into three and then we'll get halfway into four. We won't finish four today, but we'll get halfway through there. So uh, if you have your Bibles, I want you to go to 1 Thessalonians chapter two and we're going to start in verse 17. So he's writing about the news that he got from Timothy. Timothy is back from Thessalonica and he's reported on him and Paul is talking about the reason why he sent Timothy in the first place. Verse 17, he says, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, but not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan, hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Now let's pause right there. So in this letter, this is Paul's response to what he heard Timothy report on the church in Thessalonica. He says, I wanted to come and see you in person. That's the first thing he's trying to say. I wanted to be there. But I couldn't be there because Satan kept hindering me over and over and over. And since Satan was hindering me from coming back to you, I sent Timothy in my place. Now, Timothy is no second-rate backup preacher. He is the kind of guy who is filled with the Holy Spirit. He commands a presence. He loves the Lord. And he speaks with the same kind of authority as Paul would speak. When he shows up, it's, it, I don't want you treating him like he's backup. I want you to know that I sent him, and I sent him because I love you guys. And he's there to check on you. Now, two things jump out to me in this section, and this is the reason why I want to bring this out before we get into three. The first is how Paul draws attention to the fact that Satan is the one who is opposing here. We're told in chapter two, verse 18, that Satan is hindering Paul from returning to the church. And we're also told, we're about to read in three, five, that Paul is concerned that the tempter, Satan, is going to be at work in the church itself. Now I bring this up because Paul's theological view here in uh, 1 Thessalonians is an important theological view for us to adopt. The text here is not just for us to read and say, oh, well, is that interesting? Uh, you know, Satan has hindered us. Okay, well, sure, that's probably what he does. I mean, the Hebrew word for Satan is uh, adversary or opponent. 
And then when you get into the New Testament, that word isn't actually a Greek word. It's just borrowed from Hebrew. It's transliterated in. It's Satan, and he's the same thing he's always been. He's opposing, and he's an adversary to what God's plan is. So, okay, no-brainer. But there's more at work here. And the reason why I say that is because Paul is attributing what's happening, the hindering of the gospel presence, not just the fact that all the, the, uh, the boat, uh, the ferry lines, they didn't line up, the times weren't connected, or, or man, it, I couldn't get to you because of those Jews in town who kept creating an uproar and a riot. No, Paul sees what's going on behind the scenes and he sees that Satan is actually the one who's stirring up those people in the city. Satan is the one who's behind the work that's keeping Paul from getting back to the church. Now, I'm saying this because there's two views that we kind of take in the church. Either we ignore Satan completely or we give him far too much credit for what he's up to. But what Paul is presenting to us is this middle ground where he's not saying every sinful thing that happens is Satan's fault, but he's also not saying that he's not involved in anything. Paul is saying, and he's presenting to us, this idea that Satan is the one who's hindering the gospel work. He's opposing the kingdom of God, and he's at work the same way he was back in the Old Testament, the same way he is in this letter, and the same way he is today. This is what Paul is telling the church today. Speaking by the power of the Holy Spirit, folks, Satan is real. We live in an age where we have been convinced and told, not the people of God, but the world as a whole, in this new enlightened era, that there is no God, that everything that we achieve is through reason and through science and through study and through observation. And it ignores in a, a completely other spiritual realm that the Bible tells us is living and active and at work right now. There are two kingdoms behind the scenes that are, in, that are bringing themselves to the forefront and manifesting themselves in the world that we do see. This is what Paul is trying to get us to understand. That Satan is real, and he has an entire army of demonic forces, demons. See, Satan used to be on God's team. He used to be an angel that beheld the presence of God and was in the throne room of God, but he rebelled, he got kicked out, a number of angels were also kicked out, and Satan has now elevated himself as the original rebeller all the way back from the garden when he tempted Adam and Eve. He has exalted himself, not just from a serpent in Genesis, to now he's a dragon in Revelation. And he has an entire army of fallen, demonic spirits at work with him. That does not mean that they are what's behind all of your trouble, but it also does not mean that you can dismiss that as not active or participating in the things that you see today. Now, why is that important? Because if we see Satan opposing gospel work in this church, why do we not think that Satan would also be opposing gospel work in this church? Hear me. 
That person that you're sitting next to that just gets on your nerves at church. God, they are so loud during worship. Can't they be more respectful? Look, some of that's culture. Some of that's preference. You may come from a very reserved Baptist or Presbyterian background, or you might be right in the middle, maybe like a Calvary Chapel background. It's okay, we kind of raise our hands. Yeah, we're, we're good. You might be coming from a full-on Pentecostal church and like, yeah, I want to take a lap. I want to start running. <laughs> and some of you are just uh, some like, there better not be any running. I'm running out the door. <laughs> I, I say this all the time. There, there is something that adds to the corporate atmosphere of worship when you use your body and your voice to do it out loud to raise your hands to be obedient to Scripture, to sing out loud in obedience to Scripture. There is something that adds to the corporate worship when you are exuberant, but if you take it too far and the attention shifts off of Christ onto you, you are in error. And I have no problem letting you know when you're in error. If you can't figure it out, I'll help you. I'll come right behind you, just rub your back. Shh, 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 shh. Calm down, calm down. Shh, shh, shh. But my point is that when you get lots of different people from different denominational backgrounds all sitting together and all wanting more of Christ, you're going to have some of that weird stuff. And that weird stuff, Satan will use to drive a wedge between you and your brother and your sister. You can't sit back and say, well, like, that's not just preference, that's gospel. Like, this person is out of line. Okay, you might be right, but trust the leaders to handle that, and don't let the enemy get a foothold in your heart to rob you from the moment of giving praise to the king of glory because you can't focus because somebody's doing something you don't like. You follow? I'm saying this because we have to be aware that there is an enemy and he can be at work, not just out there at Target. <laughs> he, ooh. <laughs> He's also at work in the church. When the Spirit of God is not showing up in a church on Sunday mornings, I can tell you who's going to show up. The enemy loves showing up and walking up and down the aisles. And, 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 and here's another thing. This is why I'm bringing this up, because you're thinking to yourself, like, I've just been wanting to get on a Bible reading plan and get into the Word of God every single day. But every time I sit down and I open up my, my get my, my app out on my phone, I, I've got alerts. And I, some, something's trying to distract me. Let me just tell you, man, like, that's Satan. He loves hindering the gospel work. And if it is just as simple as getting you to not read your word of God because you are so focused in on the news of the day, if the first thing you look at when you open your phone in the morning is the news or social media, man, I love you, but your priorities are out of balance. If the first filter you don't put on, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, if you're not taking up the sword of the Spirit, first thing in the morning, everything else has already got you as you go along the day. May, try to make this practice. Shift some things around so that if the, the first thing that you look at 
The first, the moment you wake up, the first thing you look at is the Word of God. Try it. Try it for a week and see what happens. And I'm telling you, he's at work. He's at work in your phone. He's at work in the church. He's at work at your workplace. He's at work in your family. He's in work with your neighbors. The enemy wants to drive a wedge. Why? Because he does not want the gospel taking root and the people of God growing as disciples. And you need to know it. The other thing that jumps out to me is that Paul is conscious of Satan's attacks and wants us to be conscious of Satan's attacks because of what's on the line. You've got to know that this is a thing that you've got to pay attention for because of what's on the line. What I say, what's on the line, what am I talking about? I'm saying that church is not a social club. It's not a self-help seminar. It's not a place you go to on Sunday morning because you, you have to go or your wife is trying to convince you to go or you're trying to convince yourself this is probably where I need to be. The local church is the local expression of the body of Christ across all the world and all of time. That's why it's so important for you to get connected to a local church. You cannot just say, I watch church on TV, or I sit at home in my pajamas and I watch it on Facebook because this church is so nice to live stream it. And as long as I hear the word of God, that's good. That is good you're hearing the word of God, but you're robbing yourself of the other 70% of what it means to be connected into community. The church is not just a group of people. It is the bride of Christ. And there is a wedding day set where the king of glory is coming back for his bride. And the question is, what kind of bride is he going to find? Is he going to find a lazy, apathetic, fearful, angry, sick, and dying church? Or is he gonna find a bride that's holy and spotless and blameless? This is why Paul is letting the church know what's on the line. Because in his mind, the reflection of the local church is a reflection on the leaders in the local church. And Paul wants the joy of being able to present this church to Christ as he returns in glory. There is no other thing that Paul wants more than to be able to say, Jesus, Look at what you did. It worked. These people are your people, and they're ready to meet you. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. I want you to think about what the churches in this country, I'm just going to speak about America because I'm not familiar with lots of other countries and how the churches function over there, but I I am familiar with, with this soil. I want you to imagine what the church landscape in America would look like if this was the only thing that pastors cared about. If the only thing that pastors cared about was presenting their people holy and blameless before a holy God at his return. Now, hear me, I'm I'm not trying to be offensive, but I'm about to be. What if pastors cared less about how well the Trunk or Treat Festival went 
and more about presenting their people as holy and blameless before a holy God. Now, I'm not, I don't got anything against truck or treats. You want to go take your, we're not doing one, but if you want to take your kids, one, that's fine. I don't have anything against those. What I have something against is when churches get convinced that these programs are the things we're supposed to be spending our time and money doing. Is that event, is the purpose of it to prepare the people's heart to be holy and blameless, to meet their maker? Or are you trying to make a couple families happy who aren't really interested in Jesus anyway? They're doing it because culturally they've always done it. What would the church landscape look like if Sunday morning pastors stopped preaching sermons? Here's the seven ways you can have the best life possible. What if pastors started preaching God's word and nothing else? No more topical stuff that dips into culture and let's talk about these movies and have you seen the new Netflix special and how that has to do? What if, novel concept, what if we just got all of that off the table and the only thing that we as a people agreed to focus in on is God's word? And learning it and living it and obeying it, what if that was the only thing we cared about so that we could present the leaders, the pastors could present the people before a holy God. And what if the people started taking that seriously and started holding the pastors accountable when they start doing that kind of stuff? And saying, having honest conversations with their pastors and saying like, look, your job is to present us before a holy God at his return. That's what your job is. And we're not gonna want you to do it some days. We're gonna want you to go soft on us. We're gonna want you to let us out early. We're gonna want to cut music short because we're temperamental and we're stiff-necked. There are gonna be times where we, won't, we don't wanna do this stuff, but your job is to hold us accountable to it. You gotta keep doing it even when we don't wanna do it. Whoa, what would the church landscape look like if the people of God expected the leaders to hold the standard and the standard was the word of God and God's presence among God's people? This is the kind of stuff Paul is talking about in this letter. And it's stuff that seems so foreign to us because we treat church like a business. There's these metrics we've got to hit, and there's attendance we've got to make. We've got to justify these big buildings and these capital campaigns and raising money for this next big thing. And all of it, it starts off with a good, it seems right, but you get in the middle of it and you lose yourself in it constantly. What would it look like if we just all agreed as the people of God that the only thing that mattered was getting ourselves to a place where we are presented before a holy holy God, holy and spotless and blameless. What if the only desire a pastor had was to prepare his people to meet Jesus? Now let's get into chapter three of 1 Thessalonians. So now we get into the conversation that he has uh, about Timothy. Timothy has now come back, given the report, and now Paul is going to communicate what Timothy's report is. So verse one, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were, we were willing to be left alone or behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's coworker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. 
Let no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. And for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter, Satan, had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now Timothy has come to us from you and he has brought us good news. Good news of your faith and love and he reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith, and then he begins to speak a prayer over him. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that, we, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Let's pause right there. So Timothy has returned and he's got great news. The great news is that Satan, the tempter, was not able to prevail that the seeds that of the gospel that Paul planted in that church, he was only there, this is only, this church is, as Sean said, six, 12 months old. It's not a very old church, haven't even had their first birthday yet. And the seeds that, got, that Paul planted, they've already started to sprout. This church is growing and thriving. And this church is filled with faith and love. And that news, that this church being filled with faith and love brings comfort to Paul and his companions. Now I just wanna pause for a minute and ask this question. Why? Why does the news that the church is doing well, that it's filled with faith and love, bring comfort to Paul's companions? Here's the reason why. Because a faithful church has a way of lifting burdens. As the average church member, you may not be, you may not understand or be familiar with the weight of all the burdens that exist in the local church, but there are many. There is the burden of discipleship. Is everybody getting an opportunity to get plugged in and learn and grow? Is everyone being challenged at their appropriate level? Is everyone getting the opportunity to, to hear not just the gospel and, and the word of God being presented on a Sunday morning, but, but is, it, is it being fleshed out in a daily life way? Are families getting connected or the only time everybody's seeing each other on Sunday morning? That's a burden. It's a burden for the pastor, for the leaders. I gotta make sure that that's a healthy thing going on in our family. There's the financial burden. Are all the bills being paid? Are the needs being met? Is there anybody in our congregation that has a need that needs that need met? The burdens of hospitality. 
Is everybody who's sick at home getting a meal? Is, that or, is, that, is the way that that's organized, structured, so that, so that when you see that thing pop up on Slack and, and it's like, hey, here's a family who needs meals. It's like, God, every time you turn around, somebody's having a baby and it's just like meal train after meal train after meal train after meal train. And you start doing this thing where it's like, well, I know that family, so I'll, I'll bring a meal to them, but I don't know who those people are, so I won't even bother. You, you can't do that. You can't play favorites with people you know in the body of Christ. That's a burden that weighs on the leaders. You, you can't play favorites. It's okay to have um, a, a sense of like, I really connect with these people, and these are my people, and I love these people. But you can't be guilty of favoring these people over somebody else so that someone suffers because of your favoritism. That's sin. It's a burden. Other burdens, evangelistic burdens, are we doing the right work of God in the city? Are we just hearing the gospel on Sunday mornings and not really doing anything with it outside on, during the week? Ministry burdens, reputation burdens. What's our reputation in the city? Are we casting doubt? Are we thwarting the word of God? Are we, are we taking, is the word of God being affected by the negative ways that we're living? These are all weights, but when a church is filled with faith and love, and they care about their hearts being prepared to meet their maker and see Jesus face to face at his return. All of these burdens, they don't, get, they don't go away, but they become lighter. Hear me. Last Sunday, I stayed home with my family. Well, my kids came to church, but I stayed home with my wife to look after her and care for her. And I wanted to do that. I wanted to be there with her. But I also missed you. I missed you tremendously. And I didn't miss you because you are a dysfunctional church. I missed you because you are a healthy church. You are a vibrant, hungry, growing, spirit-filled, eyes on Jesus, hands raised, worshiping, wanting the King of glory to come back in power and fix this mess kind of church. And I missed it. I missed you because by living the way that you do, by being obedient in the way that you are, it lifts the burdens and it makes it feel as if there's not even any burdens. They're so easy because you're such a delight to serve. This is what Paul is saying. And he tells this church, because of the way that you're lifting these burdens, it makes me wanna see you more and more. Why? Because a faithful church creates a longing in the heart of the people. And that's what I was trying to describe about last week. I love my wife, I want to be with my wife. But my heart longs to be with you, the people of God, because you're a faithful church and it creates a desire inside of me to wanna to be among God's people. This is just a small representation, it's a small snapshot of what eternity will be like, and I'm here for it, I love it. I've served at churches before where people didn't wanna be there. You've attended churches, you've known Christians before you got saved that didn't even like going to church. They woke up on Sunday and they thought of a hundred places they'd rather be than in the midst of God's people. And Paul is saying that when you find a group of people 
There are no perfect churches, but there are healthy churches. And when you find that group of people that is your people, and they value the same things that you value in the word of God, and they want nothing more than to surrender this world and just turn their back on it and give their heart to Jesus and prepare their hearts and prepare their family and get this world ready for his return. They don't want anything else but that. That's the kind of people you long to be around. And your heart stirs in the moment. You, we dismiss on Sunday mornings. You walk out the door. You're already thinking about, man, I can't wait to get back here next Sunday. I miss this place, I miss these people. I wanna start finding ways to be with these people during the week. And guess what happens? That becomes attractive to non-believers because they will know us by the love we have for one another. We like being with each other and that's attractive because you don't see that everywhere. You don't see that in the world. They pretend that it's in the world, but you're on board and they will love you and accept you as long as you don't bring Jesus with you. Isn't that fascinating? That you, they will accept anything and everything except the one thing, the maker of heaven and earth. And he ends this section with a prayer and I encourage you to just read this prayer and start adopting this prayer as a way to pray over your family and your church and the missionaries we support. Lord, increase and abound them in love for one another and for all. Lord, establish their hearts as blameless in holiness. I want you to take that sentence and compare it to what you sound like when you pray. Lord, things are so bad right now. Make them good. The way we pray, the, the words we use, the English language that we use has been so affected by the culture that we're in, it almost feels like we're using emojis in our prayers. We've lost the language of prayer. We don't even know how to speak to our maker because we've lost what it means to speak to our neighbor. So you wanna find that again? You wanna increase not just your vocabulary, but you wanna, you want to change your prayer into a robust prayer life, then you start looking at the way Paul prayed and you say over your kids, God, establish their hearts as blameless in holiness. We want their hearts blameless in holiness. And that idea of holiness is then introduced into chapter four. So let's go to First Thessalonians chapter four. Let's read verses one through eight. So finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Okay. Well, we don't know what they are, so Paul, can you let us in on the secret? Like, what instructions did you give them? This is gonna be some juicy stuff, right? We're expecting like, man, what'd you tell them? What did you say that Jesus said to them? And all of a sudden, he starts talking about sexual immorality, and, and we're out. Verse three, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. God, what is your will for my life? Sanctification, holiness, that's his will for your life. That you abstain from sexual immorality. 
that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. That in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, excuse me, not in the passion of the lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all of these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but he has called us in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this command disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Let's pause right there. Because the church is growing and they're imitating Paul's example. And Paul is saying, great job. Here's what I want you to do. Keep doing it. More and more and more. Everything you are doing is right. I want you to keep doing it, except for this one thing that needs some special attention. And we talked about this with you when we were with you, and now we've got to revisit it because it doesn't seem that you're taking it very seriously. And this is the issue of sexual immorality. Now, the thing you have to understand about this church is that it was made up primarily of Gentiles. And all the Gentiles in the city, they brought their customs from the Roman and the Greek world with them into the church. And one of the predominant customs that they had when they brought, that they brought into the church was in Thessalonica, there was a deity that they worshiped. It was, uh, it was called Kabiri. And it was a twin deity. And it kind of got refashioned in Greek culture and then in Roman culture. But essence, it was these two twin brothers and they specialized in fertility and also protecting sailors at sea. That was their thing. So when you came into the city of Thessalonica, you would see these centers of worship to these twin deities. And what you would see would be temple prostitutes. And the way that you would worship the way you would get these deities' attention so that they would show favor on you is you would go into the temple and you would pay to have sex with a prostitute. And that act would then be a kind of worship that would stir the gods to want to show favor on you. That's how this worked. And so these Gentiles came into the church and they bring these cultures with them. And what you have in this culture, primarily with the men, is that men had um, multiple sexual partners and they were almost never limited to just their wife. In this culture, there was uh, mistresses, there were slaves, concubines, harlots, temple prostitutes, and then there was also your wife. And your wife's only responsibility was to manage your home and raise your legitimate heir. Your, your actual legitimate children. And so when Paul comes into town, he has a bunch of over-sexualized men and sexual immorality is infused in the culture so that it's actually not just affecting men, it's affecting the way that women see themselves in society as well. It's a good thing it's not like this anymore, huh? <laughs> Praise God we're past all that. And so Paul's words to a 2,000-year-old church ring in our ears because we see the same thing today. So what Paul says is, if you're a Christian, then you focus on holiness 
And holiness in this specific context, in these verses, means no sexual immorality of any kind. Okay, I hear you, but what's sexual morality? Because everywhere you look, somebody's trying to tell you something different. What is sexual immorality? Well, the way that God helps us understand this is beautiful because he doesn't give us the 93 things that are sexual immorality. He tells us the one thing that he expects is holiness and everything that's not that is sexual immorality. That's how he handles this. Which is helpful because humans have a way of inventing new forms of sexual immorality. Coming up with ways to take this one thing and turn it just slightly so it looks very similar to the thing that God commanded, but it has our own flavor and our own desires in it. And he says, no, not that thing either. So what's the thing? What is the example? It is one man and one woman in the biblical covenant of marriage. Any sexual activity outside of one man and one woman in the context of biblical marriage, anything other than one man, a man who was born a man and has always been a man, and a woman who has born a woman and always been a woman, in the context of biblical marriage, anything other than that one thing that God says, this is what I'm blessing, anything other than that is sin. Now, listen to me. I'm not trying to beat a drum here. I'm not trying to rally the choir. I know most of you guys are on this team, and you're like, yeah, finally somebody's going to say it. Amen. Look, I'm not just starting to say it. I've been saying this for 10 years, okay? This isn't new, and I know that most of us can rally around this. I'm saying this the way that I'm saying this because many of you have young people who are hearing the exact opposite of this. Look, if you're, if you're over 40, you're over 50, you're just like, yeah, I got it, man. I've always got, like, yeah. This whole new thing that, like, I got it. I'm not, this isn't for you. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be mean. I, I, I'm not trying to, to play some side of the aisle. I'm trying to help you understand what the current young generation is experiencing right now. They are being presented with something that is completely opposite of what the biblical example of holiness looks like. And you're gonna be asked, well, well, dad, what about this? And if you can't with compassion in your eyes say, sweetheart, that is sin. Your little girl's in trouble. So let me run down some of these here. Adultery, it's sin. It is sin to sleep with someone that is not your spouse. It is sin to have a romantic relationship with someone that is not your spouse, that's sin. Pornography, that's a sin. There's no space for that to be okay. It's sin and you've gotta put it to death. Homosexuality, it's a sin. 
It is a sin. You cannot be a practicing homosexual and say that you are also a follower of Jesus. Because this is the example, and anything that's not this is sin, and Jesus calls us to repent of sin. Heterosexuality outside of marriage is sin. So I'm, not, I'm not just trying to pick on one group, I'm picking on everybody. Anything that's not this is sin. Fornication with your girlfriend. If you're having sex with your girlfriend, that's sin. If you're fooling around with your girlfriend in the back of the car, that's sin. If you're having sex with your fiance, that is sin. You're not there yet. Fornication with somebody else's fiance, also sin. <laughs> Polygamy, sin. Pedophilia, sin. Paul is calling us out because it's something that needs to be called out. Because he says that Christians are expected to live sexually pure lives. You're not like non-believers who can't control their passions. You can control your passions and you are expected to control your passions. And if you don't, your offense is against God and you must repent. But there is good news. If you do repent of this lifestyle and you turn from your sin, your sins are washed away and you are brought into the family of God and you are given a new life. You are a new creation and those old desires are washed away and you are given new desires. That's what it means to be transformed. But it requires turning and repenting. And at this point, he pivots from sexual immorality and he speaks on daily life, and this is where I wanna finish, so go to verse nine. Just gonna read nine through 12. This is now concerning brotherly love. You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you were doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia, but we urge you, brothers, do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So Paul says, look, what you're doing is right, I want you to do more of it, do more and more and more, but the question comes up, well what does more and more look like? And so he gives them examples. What does more and more look like? It looks like aspiring to live quietly live an unhurried, unbusied, not loud, not obnoxious kind of life. That's what a Christian should look like. And he keeps going, he says, mind your own affairs, meaning avoid gossip, tend your own garden, stop worrying so much about your neighbor. That isn't to say that you shouldn't care for your brothers and your sisters and your neighbor, but it is to say that you need to get your nose out of their business. There is a difference between genuine holy concern and gossip and just wanting to know because you just wanna know, because you're gonna use that information to leverage against them later. You're gonna, and maybe not against them, but to, to puff yourself up, because if you can be seen as the person who's always in the know, then you're the person everybody goes to and you're needed. And God, you need to be needed. And he says, work with your hands. 
This isn't a call for everybody to be a blue collar worker. He's, he's saying don't be a burden on people, be a blessing. It was popular in this culture for uh, wealthy believers to take on uh, uh, people with no money and basically adopt them in a sense where they would raise them up, send them to school, educate them, uh, be a patron to them. Paul is saying the church is getting filled with people who don't want to work or do anything. They just want to live off of everybody else's generosity. And he's saying you need to stop that. But the question is why is he asking the church to live like this? Because it has a gospel impact. Because the world is watching the way that we live. And nobody is interested in joining a family filled with loudmouth, nosy freeloaders. When you live like that, you tarnish the gospel message. It's a message nobody wants. So as I said earlier, this is a 2,000 year old letter and man, it feels so relevant today. It's speaking to our modern structures, struggles, excuse me, speaking to our modern struggles of sexuality and hospitality. It's covering our work ethic. But man, it's also covering how we as a church usually excel at hospitality and being nice, but neglect the call to holiness. We want people to like us, we want the world to like us, and so we stop talking about holiness. So here's what I want. I want you as a church to go through this letter again this week, and I want you to read it and hear the word of the Lord speaking through this letter. And, and as you do, I want you to listen for the Spirit to speak to you through this letter. I want you to hear the Spirit of God showing you areas in your life that need attention and repentance. And I also want you to hear areas where the Spirit is whispering in your ear, good job, well done, my good and faithful servant, but do more, do more. In the world that we live in, it is so easy for us to just sit back in our lazy boy recliner and to just let everyone, just to watch everyone else do the ministry work or to be so busy with our own work that the work of God never gets working in your life. You're so busy building your kingdom that his kingdom kind of gets left to the leftovers. I want you to read this letter again and I want you, the word of God, to pierce you and convict you and encourage you to keep doing more and more of what you're doing. So this is your homework this week. Go back and reread what we read and then don't stop at verse 13. Finish four and five because next week we're gonna come back and we're gonna talk about the other issue that Paul is addressing in this church and it is the fear of dying. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you wanna hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us and God bless.